0: Hey everyone, it's Lucas and Anita. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends. Breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. So during the second half of the episode, we'll be chatting with Aaron Levy, the CEO of Box a very known crypto skeptic. So he's got some good insights for us. But before we get to that, let's talk through some of the biggest news of the week. The crypto markets are hurting real bad. Market capitalization of all cryptocurrencies fell below $1 trillion on Monday for the first time since February 2021. What exactly is going on here, Anita?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on. And obviously the crypto markets have been in turmoil for a couple of weeks now. But there was an incident that occurred this past week that really kicked a lot of this into overdrive. And that was a protocol called Celsius. Celsius is basically a crypto lending protocol. And they announced this week that they were going to pause all withdrawals. And that sent the market into an absolute frenzy. The way Celsius works is that they take in U.S. dollar deposits from their customers and they invest them into decentralized finance protocols. And a lot of these protocols are often really risky because they're offering their customers pretty high yields. So basically what happened is that a lot of the users on the platform, all of a sudden wanted to withdraw their money. And it was equivalent to, let's say, like a a run on the banks where, you know, everyone, all the users, like want to take their cash out at the same time. But unfortunately, Celsius decided right at that moment that they were going to pause all withdrawals. And it's speculated that the reason behind that is because they didn't have the liquidity to pay the users back. So the customer funds that they had been investing, a lot of them were most likely locked up in another token called Staked ETH. That's a whole other can of worms that I'm not going to get into right now, but Staked ETH has been (sighs) losing value for a little while. So Celsius, when they had to pay back all these customers, probably realized like, oh shit, we actually don't have the cash on hand to give users the ability to withdraw. Too many people want to take their money out. And you know, it was interesting because this shouldn't have necessarily come as a surprise. Withdrawals had been happening on Celsius for a while. You know, investors have been losing a bit of confidence in DeFi in general, and in the first half of 2022, the total amount of digital assets locked up on Celsius shrank from 24 billion at the beginning of the year to about 12 billion right before they paused withdrawals. And so, this had been this has been unfolding for a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of an interesting situation where I think at this point it seems like a little bit of faith has returned. So like Celsius has a native token, which really crashed during a lot of these initial concerns. But I think people generally feel like they've been able to acquire some of the liquidity to you know shore up their protocol from some of their investors because their token has recovered. I mean, it's still down a lot from its all-time high, but it's recovered to where it was kind of before this crash. Yeah. But this was just one thing causing the crypto markets to go down. When Celsius investors came back to it and were you know, feeling more confident in it, the crypto markets didn't get better all of a sudden. There are a lot of macro concerns right now, correct?
1: Yeah, and people were just losing trust and losing faith in these DeFi protocols in general. And part of the reason I think it came as such a surprise to investors with Celsius in particular is that they raised $750 million in funding last November. You know, it seemed like they were pretty well capitalized. It seemed like this wasn't an issue that they were going to run into in terms of liquidity. But what's super interesting to me is a lot of crypto is actually so intertwined, right? Like Celsius actually had a bunch of user funds in Terra, which is the protocol that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that crashed and ended up wiping out $40 billion in value from the crypto ecosystem. It was a stablecoin. So Celsius held a bunch of those funds and allegedly they pulled those funds out of the Terra anchor protocol right before the crash. So they did get out, but it just kind of goes to show that all of these different protocols have so many connections. Another one that happened today was crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital now is facing insolvency. And apparently, according to their website, their biggest holdings are Ethereum, Solana, and the Luna token. Luna is also linked to Terra. And the prices of those three tokens are down 77%, 90%, and 99.7% respectively from their lifetime highs. So even though the Celsius token may have recovered a little bit, overall, the entire crypto ecosystem, and especially DeFi, is just so intertwined that if one thing sort of goes wrong, it does end up leading to this domino effect that we're seeing play out in the markets right now.
0: Right. I mean, crypto has been through many crashes. And like, if you ask any longtime crypto entrepreneurs, they'll be like, eh, you know, we've been through a lot of these, like, we don't get too worried about it. But things are different this time. The ecosystem grew so much in the past couple years. And- A lot of this downturn is tied to fears of a global recession across all, you know, equity markets. And basically, crypto is falling harder and faster than it ever has before. Generally, with every kind of like crypto bull run, it never really sinks below the high of the previous bull run. But it's already pretty much doing that for Ethereum, and it looks like it's on its way to doing that for Bitcoin as well. So there is some sense that things could be getting worse than they ever were before, which, you know... If you're, if you're a crypto millionaire, probably, or if you were at one point, I guess, isn't, isn't <laughs> the best news to hear.
1: Right, right. I mean, that actually is a good segue into our next point, which is that it seems like regulators are taking advantage of this moment in the bear market. I don't know if you, you want to talk a little more about that, Lucas.
0: Right. I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week with the U.S. Senate bill getting introduced. But I mean, basically, regulators want to regulate things effectively and do so in a way that doesn't really end the party for economic momentum. They don't want to be responsible for just like causing a die-off in a big industry that potentially could have been centered in the United States. So generally, they've been pretty light-handed when it comes to regulating crypto companies. You have to do something very bad in order to get company shutdown-level regulation coming through. But now, as the market has cooled a little bit, there's some action that's happening. So there are a couple little things that happened this week. One of Celsius's big rivals, BlockFi, had to pay a million dollars for selling unregistered securities in Iowa, which is an example of just how so much of this stuff is state by state, even within the United States. Also, there was a class action lawsuit against Binance US, which was accused of promoting the UST stablecoin and Luna to its investors. and Yeah, that's
1: the Terra coins.
0: Yeah, saying it was basically a safe bet or something like that, or at least, at least what the class action lawsuit says. So there's that. And then there's some more interesting stuff happening that's kind of the SEC looking at some of the big crypto exchanges and seeing if there's insider trading happening in them when they list new tokens, if employees of those companies find out before. And like this is all action happening that's like slowly kind of bringing in the walls on whether these are just funny money tokens or if they are indeed registered securities, which people should go to prison for uh, like trading illegally, essentially. So. There's a lot going on right now. Our good friend SEC chairman Gary Gensler had some words to say, Anita.
1: Can you talk about some of that? Last week, we chatted a little bit about the bipartisan Senate bill that was just introduced called the Responsible Financial Innovation Act. And generally, this bill has been seen as pretty crypto-friendly, And Chairman Gensler said this week that he's basically worried about, you know, classifying these crypto tokens as commodities, as the bill would do, that it would undermine investor protections. He said, we don't want to undermine the protections we have in a one hundred trillion dollar capital market. He said that on Tuesday at a Wall Street Journal event when he was asked about the bill. And what was interesting about this is that the bill has been really cited by a lot of people in crypto as a win. I mean, obviously, there's a long way to go in terms of actually getting it passed and maybe any amendments that will come up, but overall, it classifies... Crypto as commodities versus securities, meaning they would fall under the jurisdiction of the CFTC rather than the SEC. And crypto people are pretty happy about this, and they're pretty satisfied with it because, generally speaking, the SEC has you know been seen as a little bit more hardcore when it comes to cracking down in, in regulatory terms. So they want to be regulated by the CFTC, but Chairman Gensler obviously is saying, "Hey, look, like that might not be such a great idea after all."
0: Well, yeah, he, he's basically saying like just because you guys don't want to be a security doesn't mean you're not a security, <laughs> right? And right. like I think you know he's basically saying if all of a sudden. And we start calling things that behave like securities <laughs> commodities, that undermines all the things we already say are securities. Okay, like, if it m- walks like you know, a security w-
1: and it talks like a security, like what is it?
0: <laughs> Exactly. And I mean, I think people see this bill going through the Senate right now as something that generally errs on the side of these things being commodities. And, you know, I think it's surprising even to some people who are expecting a little bit more heavy handed regulation if this thing gets very far, which frankly, I'm skeptical. I think that like so many retail investors are going to get absolutely screwed over by this market crash that it's just going to be it's going to be like a nightmare scenario. And there's going to have to be kind of a little bit of a reckoning in terms of making widespread Investor protections yeah. accessible.
1: The regulation has been so behind for so long that I think this bill is just a starting point, and we'll see. Yeah. You know what other actions government and regulators, specifically in the U.S., end up bringing against crypto.
0: Yeah. So we talked a little bit about stuff in the Ethereum ecosystem, the Web three world, but Web three is already a thing of the past, it seems. Uh, what? Yeah, happ- Web three
1: is so over. <laughs>
0: yeah. So so this week we we had Jack Dorsey announcing a new element of his company Block which is you know the payments company formerly known as Square. He's a big Bitcoin guy. He's got a new project called Web5 that's inside of-
1: Yeah, wait. So, so we, <laughs> just to be clear, we, we totally skipped over Web4, and we've gone from Web3 to Web5, right? It, it,
0: so. to, be, to be very clear, Jack Dorsey, I don't think, is taking this seriously. This is a troll of all of Web3. <laughs> but yes, he skipped Web4, and we went straight to Web5. And he's doing this and it's with a Bitcoin lens in mind. So he doesn't really like Ethereum. He doesn't like any of these smart contract tokens. He likes, you know, he's a Bitcoin maximalist, which is like a very specific type of crypto person who believes that we already have the perfect token. We already have the perfect network. All of these other tokens are just big pump and dump scams. So it's... It's not really clear what's going on here. Like, Web5, he didn't launch and say, like, this is the ultimate goal for it. Basically, on the website, they say that they're building infrastructure that enables everyone to access and participate in the global economy. That
1: sounds really nice. It sounds Sounds nice.
0: I don't have any idea what it means.
1: (laughs) Right, right.
0: (laughs) But there was some interesting chatter on this. He's taken shots at Web3 VCs like Andreessen Horowitz in the past saying that they're trying to create a future of the internet that they fundamentally own and have a lot of the tokens and can govern the networks in whatever way they see fit. So he tweeted after the announcement that this will likely be our most important contribution to the internet, later noting RIP Web3 VCs. Uh, oh burn. Yeah, yes. There was some there it seems like there were some other contributions from the tech elite on the idea. Of
1: course. So Elon Musk came in with a very scholarly comment on Twitter as well saying uh, he he proposed a vision for the internet from himself which was a dogecoin powered web69. <laughs>
0: It is, um, it is nice that we have him coming in with some clutch ideas. But this was a troll announcement, so having some, some troll back and forth only made sense. So he made this announcement at this big crypto conference called Consensus, which I was not at, but Anita, you were. Yes, what, I what, was. What happened there? <laughs>
1: There were 15,000 people approximately is what I read descending on the city of Austin, Texas. It was a lot of fun and, you know, a lot going on, a lot of different panels. And I, I thought it was interesting because we are in this period where we're seeing the markets in a downturn, but there was still a lot of enthusiasm and excitement over crypto. And one thing that's just been on my mind, and it's an ongoing question that I'm sure we'll address in this podcast, is I've sort of heard two lines of thinking. And I think before the past couple of weeks, a lot of people were saying, hey, look, in terms of Web3 technology, in terms of blockchain and crypto, it's still early days. You know, it's still the beginning. We still have so much more to do and the technology, it's still early days in terms of what it can do. And I've sort of seen that shift when I talk to sources about, you know, how are you feeling about what's going on in the markets? And are you scared about the downturn? And now a lot of people are saying, well, actually, you know, it's been a long time and I'm a crypto veteran. I've been in crypto for so long. I've seen so many downturns. I'm not worried because this has happened before. So it's just a little bit of a contradiction that I'm trying to to grapple with in my head. Like, are we still in early days or is this sort of the cycle of how crypto is going to evolve?
0: Well, after the 2017 bull run, When there was the crypto winter after that in 2018 and 2019, you know, that was very much a question like, could this all be heading to zero? And I think that maybe that fear has been allayed a little bit here, but at the same time, I think that. People are beginning to question how many fundamental parts of the Web3 ecosystem can just completely blow up very quickly. If you look at something like Celsius, they raised $750 million. And like most people would have thought, okay, well, they're going to use that money responsibly to kind of weather any potential storms that are coming their way. And a lot of companies raised big venture rounds in 2021. And people are just like, ah, you know, at their current burn rate, they'll be able to survive for three or four years on this. No worry. But... They're just trying to compete and they're so over leveraged on what they're investing in. They're trying to become trillion dollar companies. They don't have time to act conservatively. So as a result, you see companies weathering a few weeks of bad news and potentially being insolvent. So there's yeah. just this like idea that everything could crash so quickly. And I saw this interesting tweet from this random person. I don't remember who tweeted it, but he, was, he said, it was basically like, the thing about crypto winners is the depressing part isn't the... Prices continuing to go down. The depressing part is the silence. Nothing is happening. Nothing's being talked about. No one knew was coming into the space. And I think that for people who just got into the space as retail investors this year, that's going to be a big change because there's been so much action happening and a lot of stuff for us to talk about.
1: Yeah, I mean, hopefully we still have things to talk about. I'd, I'd <laughs> like to keep my job in uh, crypto journalism, so <laughs> fingers yeah, crossed we'll, on that. But
0: yeah, I would. We'll have opinions on the on the smaller happenings, regardless, though. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. You might remember this week's guest because we talked about one of his tweets last week. Aaron Levy, co-founder and CEO of enterprise software company Box, is a well-known critic of Web3 both on and off of Twitter.
0: Aaron, very excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, you know, we just did this interview with Sharam from A16Z where we talked about one of your tweets. Uh, I know that you engage with a lot of ideas and people on Twitter, but I guess just broadly, what made crypto, blockchain, Web3 like something that you're particularly interested in talking about?
2: Yeah, so first thing is I pay attention to basically every single tech trend. Web3 crypto is sort of, to me, not... Not abnormal in terms of studying it, making sure that I understand what sort of is happening in the market, figuring out how it might play out. I probably have tweeted about it a bit more than maybe normal tech trends. And we can get into kind of why I sort of have shared some thoughts and, and put out some of the maybe critical feedback. But I think by just virtue of being a startup founder, you you sort of have to understand where, where the world is going. And then you have to make choices about if you believe the world is actually going in the direction that other people are saying or not. And so probably the most fundamental level, you know, this concept that certain founders can or can't participate in the conversation, you know, depending on what they do, is like ridiculous because <laughs> obviously by definition, I have to make sure that that I understand where the world is going and what we're gonna bet on. So that's sort of why I started paying attention. But uh, you know, I think my own journey in the space. At a very, I mean, I'm not really in the space, but my own journey watching it is 10 plus years ago, paying attention to Bitcoin, watching the rise of Bitcoin, six or seven years ago, hearing about Ethereum, watching the rise of Ethereum. And then the past kind of year, uh, year plus, sort of seeing this idea of NFTs and, and Web3 begin to emerge and I think for the Bitcoin and Ethereum eras, mostly I was just watching. Maybe once a year, I did like a troll tweet just because because I
0: have to. Like that <laughs> gotta keep it I, spicy. That's how oh my my,
2: my brain works, unfortunately. But I think in the past year, this sort of idea of Web three really caused me to say, okay, I'm going to dig in even more than I was previously. Figure out if I think this is sort of the future or not. And then I had you know customers and investors and press and employees sort of say, hey, you know, what's this Web three thing? Is it going to matter? Is it important to us? which then caused me to get even more maybe vocal again than, than normal.
0: Yeah. So I mean, like one of the things that investors who've come on this show have talked about is like, they got involved with this because they saw a big developer interest and like people were just like psyched to talk about it. It's very fun to talk about philosophically. Yep. That's part of the reason that we have this podcast. But I mean, like, what do you kind of take away from, you know, this kind of like developer excitement? Around it,
2: um, I think there's no question. There's developer excitement. It's empirically there's a tremendous amount of development activity happening. Probably largely, maybe more than other tech trends that I've seen, more at the infrastructure layer. And I actually think there's a reason for that. I don't think that's an accident. Uh, I think there's a tremendous amount of innovation in L1s and in L2s and you know security and all of the sort of base infrastructure of this movement. So unquestionably, there's a lot of developer interest. I actually think the bigger question is sort of is there consumer interest and what is that consumer <laughs> interest based on. And mm-hmm. maybe part of the reason why my skepticism sort of increased was it felt like more of that consumer interest was being measured by token prices and transactions, which unfortunately means that that you don't always know, is that consumer interest driven by, you know, sort of speculative investing or is it driven by more long-term utilitarian use cases. And and I'm I am Spoiler a big I, I am a big believer <laughs> that if you're gonna have a new era of the internet, it really is needs to be backed by more utilitarian infrastructure led or or kind of consumer use case led value propositions as opposed to more speculative investment led value propositions. And so that was the mm-hmm. thing that kind of maybe stood out to me and created some cognitive dissonance from other tech movements that I've seen. And and you know I was in the first types of conferences and hacker meetups in web two. And it didn't really feel like a lot of what I was perceiving was going on with with some of the web three conversation. Mm.
1: Aaron, yeah, I definitely want to dig into the criticism a little bit more. And I've seen a bunch of your tweets about what you call puzzles in the world of web three that you're basically talking about, at least from my understanding, like paradoxes of value. And I wanted to ask you, what do you see as some of the biggest underlying issues in web three that are going to prevent it from becoming this sort of vision that VCs have promised of the new internet that's going to change the way that we live?
2: Yeah, I think so. First of all, the first disclaimer is who knows what's going to happen, right? right? right. Uh, you know, we're, we're all we're all just trying to to make our guesses. So I, I obviously can't guarantee any yeah, particular outcome. Lucas and I
1: included. But,
2: uh, yeah, but but um, no, no, mine are always correct.
1: <laughs> i out of to it. here.
2: Um, and the other disclaimer I'd just say is that I think the philosophy behind much of Web three is compelling. I think it would be very hard to argue with the idea that. You know, more decentralized innovation—you know—wouldn't be a good thing. That, that I'm completely pro that. It'd be hard to argue that people should have more control of their data on the margin, right. if possible. If it was technically possible, I think that would be a good thing. Or we could control our identities and have more portability between technologies. Like the philosophies, I fully subscribe to. I think the implementation that I've seen has a lot of challenges of actually getting to that philosophy being kind of realized. And just let's just take a couple random examples of things that seem to be core beliefs in this technology. You know, one is tokenized economics and, and sort of tokenized networks. And one of the concerns that I kind of threw out there on on Twitter as an example didn't really get much in the way of, of sort of responses that would satisfy the kind of question. But this idea that you're going to incentivize your early adopters financially to build out your network. And then at some point, you're going to kind of transition your user base into more of a utility-based set of use cases. And at least from you know, my 15-plus years doing and watching startups, it's hard enough to build a product anybody wants to use in the first place. Right. And so now you have to contend, you have to contend with a user-based transition where some set of people join for profit motivation, and you need to now transition to a more utility-based motivated population while not losing the more profit-motivated people in the process to the point where they kind of collapse the network and then sort of don't have enduring value for the future users, that's a very difficult transition, in my opinion, to be able to make. Because what would happen is your early profit-motivated users, as soon as they start to see that the value creation is sort of there's less upside, they might potentially go and move on to a new network where they would be able to go and generate similar upside. And in that process... They wouldn't be there to kind of continue to create value for the next set of users that are going to be joining for those more utilitarian use cases. So I think you've got actually some things that to me kind of look like they're anti-network effects. You know, Airbnb, Uber, YouTube, Twitter, the way it works is the more users that join, they contribute things that cause other users to join and contribute more things. And then you separate the investors in that value proposition because you don't want to necessarily mix the incentive models Of people that are financially motivated, from people that are sort of motivated by the core product utility, and I think there's a lot of conflicts that get created when you start to sort of merge these two audiences together: people that are profit motivated from the network scale, and people that are just the regular users. You know, another great example is the limited signal that you would then get in building a product in Web3, where you don't really know if your users are joining because they see sort of upside in the token, um, or if you've actually nailed your kind of product market fit. And startups that are really early stage, they have to spend an immense amount of time with their users to be able to understand, like, are they solving the use case? Is that use case organically being adopted by people? Is it growing virally? And when you add this sort of financial incentive element, it can often create a a, a kind of a convoluted set of signal that you'd have to work with because you don't necessarily know why your users are showing up. Is it for profit or is it for sustainable long-term utility? And so these are some of the, just on the developer, on the the sort of startup and founder side of the challenges that I sort of run into without I think, you know, satisfying answer. So we can pause right there. There's a couple other types of these puzzles that have been difficult for me to at least reconcile. But yeah,
1: and actually you mentioned earlier that some of the technical challenges, right? That like there's a lot of objectives in crypto that are maybe not technically possible. Is that sort of a separate category in your mind from the incentive challenges that you just described?
2: Yeah, so the first thing is sort of the economic incentives. And I think the theory is, is that the economic incentives help user adoption. I actually think they hurt user adoption because of the various conflicts that emerge as a result of that. There's then a sort of a technical set of challenges that equally emerge. And one of the big theories and philosophies of Web3 is that you get better data portability, you have sort of this right to exit applications, and then we get more interoperability in software over time. And I think that's a fantastic philosophy. Like, There's no way you would ever argue that. I think the challenge is that when you begin to sort of have financial incentives in the platforms and the protocols you're actually going to get more fragmentation and less standardization than you would if the market sort of said, okay, let's work together to create shared protocols without financial incentives that are involved. Because what you're going to end up happening is you have a lot of different factions within the ecosystem, all arguing for slightly different outcomes in the technical design space, and the challenge is the users, because the user is going to have to log in and you know to these apps, and, and they have the keys to the data that's on the blockchain. The users actually then have to start to pay attention to infrastructure debates that they never really had to pay attention to before. You know, they, yeah, they,
1: yeah, totally. You know, in the normal
2: internet, users don't have to wonder: Is Google built on on <laughs> you know, um, with uh, the layer one or Dell servers. But in that Web3 world, you have to pay attention to, is that thing built on Solana or is it built on Ethereum? And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you have a new level of complexity that was introduced because of how we've sort of built from an infrastructure. So that's that's sort of one technical challenge that that emerges that kind of makes the space more complex. Another challenge that emerges is, you know, the theory is, is that we're going to all sort of agree on a data standard, you know, social network data standard, or a, you know, how tweets will become portable, or how a you know a shared YouTube might work. The problem is is that that begins to slow down innovation at an incredible at an incredible level. So Moxie wrote this post that that was a um, obviously a takedown of the NFT space. But actually four or five years prior, he wrote another post that was called the ecosystem is moving. And what that meant was they actually realized that their pace of innovation was incredibly slow because they had to get all of the applications that were built on their on their protocols to be in line with all of the updates that they were making. And what ended up happening was it actually slowed down their pace of innovation pretty dramatically. And the thing that we've come to rely on in the internet is rapid innovation in software. The pace of innovation of Facebook in its early days, of YouTube in its early days, of Twitter in its early days was massive. The challenge is if you want data portability, you need now a whole bunch of clients to all recognize the same data models and the same data standards. And the moment those get out of sync, now you don't actually get the same value of interoperability. And so the thing that I contend is that that's going to be a lot harder than we think it is. Once you get past some of the more financial assets that currently this works well for, the moment you get to kind of low value data, basic profile information or tweets or basic social graph data, where there isn't as much financial upside to that portability because nobody's trading on that information. Now I have a lot less incentive. To, to kind of work across the ecosystem and slow down my rate of innovation to keep the whole ecosystem in line. And so my concern is, is that you're actually going to get a slower pace of product development in this architectural pattern than what we're actually used to in sort of at least what some call kind of Web2 you know era. And so I think what's going to happen is you're going to get developers that can't move as quickly because they have to keep more of their ecosystem in line, as well as the fact that it's a very different kind of infrastructure that the end consumer has to care about. So that slows you down. And you have these sort of economic paradoxes that make it really, really hard to sort of sustain, you know, utility-based networks over the long run. So again, these are sort of theories, of course, because we're so early in the space that I can't be proven right about or wrong about necessarily. But these are sort of things that, that kind of, to me, point to this is a more challenging
0: exercise than what
2: some of the visions have laid out. I just think that, you know, the the premise of the conversation is that we need a new successor to the web.
0: Yes. No one was talking about rebuilding web 1.0 when web 2.0 came around. It was only web 2.0 when that happened.
2: Yeah, actually, well, it's it's actually really funny you frame it that way, because that's basically how I remember it. Like, when web 2.0 came around, which is sort of like what we actually called it, it was really just a new set of standards that let you build richer applications for the web. Like, There was no sort of, it was not particularly disruptive to the first era of web companies. Like all those companies just built software in a web 2.0 fashion. It was much more of a modernization of how we built software, you know, for the web. So it was really just a continued momentum of the current architecture and infrastructure that we already had didn't like cause you to, to completely change how you design software from a data model standpoint and an infrastructure standpoint you just built software that was faster and easier and more interactive and and more collaborative for users and i think that maybe the one challenge with the web 3 sort of versus web 2 framing is it kind of implies that okay we now have a new successor to you know web 2 but it's it's a little bit somewhat of a manufactured successor like it, it's it's a bit arbitrary that that name kind of caught on Mm -hmm. And sort of is is sort of causing this conversation in the first place, because I would actually argue that there's still just as much opportunity in developing on kind of the web, quote unquote, just like regular web as there ever has been. I mean, there's there's infinite opportunity in commerce and healthcare and life sciences and communication and transportation and all of these sectors. So I think it's a little bit of a somewhat of a confusing metaphor to then say, well, Web3 is sort of the successor to all that. And that's where the opportunity is when we really haven't. It's not actually a linear standard evolution in just our design of software.
0: Well, it is funny because you'll see people tweeting like, I'm looking to invest in the Web3 Uber, or the Web3 Airbnb, and then you have to wonder like, all right, well, for the users, what are they really, <laughs> are they clamoring to get their own Web3 action into these products or do they just enjoy the products and they just want them to work better in a functional way?
2: Right, and, and in general, the arc of technology is that things get cheaper, faster, more ubiquitous, networks get more performant, and then at each sort of step function of change, we can build software then for consumers or businesses that sort of take advantage of those things. And that's the kind of general arc of innovation. Web3 sort of throws a little bit of a curveball, which says, well, on a completely different axis of benefit, you can do certain things. But th- that axis of benefit comes with a whole bunch of trade offs and sort of new taxes that emerge that, again, don't follow sort of the standard web evolution. And so that's why. You know, it's, it, to me, it's kind of a, a bit of a just a distracting terminology even to begin with. If things were just called kind of crypto and blockchains, I actually wouldn't really care that much because then you, you just understand the trade-offs of should you build a crypto network or a blockchain based, you know, system? Yes or no. Like, cool. But but sort of it's this idea that this is somehow a, a sort of a successor to the web that doesn't really. Uh, that makes you. Sense. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, it, it actually reminds me of another dichotomy that we talk about a lot in Web3, which is like TradFi versus DeFi. I mean, I come from a finance background, and what I think is interesting is what you're saying about Web3 sort of being this it, its own thing, like crypto and blockchain is its own thing. Actually, what I've noticed in DeFi is a lot of the products that are out there, even though they are on the blockchain, they really mirror things that already exist in our traditional financial system. It's like, that's something that's always puzzled me a little bit.
2: Well, I think, it, but it kind of has to, because you could already, I mean, if people have existing problems, there's really nothing preventing you from solving those problems in right. in, in kind of quote unquote web two infrastructure. I do think that in DeFi, there are use cases that are, must be faster and, and more efficient than yeah. sort of regular FinTech. But some of that is just because the regulatory environment hasn't been able to sort of catch up to some of those use cases. So then the question is, if you have to add the same level of KYC and the same level of compliance in these systems are you going to get any additional efficiency i actually don't know because i'm not as close to uh, to the finance space and so i don't really care about defi i just yeah. i just care about sort of more general purpose utility based you know networks and applications and are those plausibly going to be built in this sort of web3 fashion
1: yeah yeah totally it's just interesting how we sort of juxtapose these two worlds
0: uh, yep so I've seen a lot of your tweets and I've seen a lot of these ideas play out on Twitter. And, you know, more often than not, you get a couple crypto VCs in your replies or just being like just a classic Web 2 entrepreneur fudding Web 3. I mean, and obviously this industry is, has been around for a decade plus or something like that. There's like a significant in-group poll and a lot of skepticism about critics. But do you feel like you see people grappling with these questions internally? Or do you think that a lot of people just like don't want to see the party end, so they're kind of just going with the flow until it stops working?
2: Well, I think um, without maybe ascribing any particular motivation, I kind of think about it a little bit simpler, which is there's a really exciting new technology that's emerged. That exciting new technology has some financial aspects to it that kind of somewhat pollute the discussion that we would normally be having. The normal discussion we would have is what product did you build? How are consumers using it? Would they keep showing up if you weren't paying them? We don't know the answers to many of these questions because of some of the kind of dilution effect we get of of the signal with the financial incentives. So I I don't necessarily know the motivation of any VC or anybody in the space in terms of do they really believe it or are they just doing this for, for the financial reasons? But what I do think is that people have not sort of come up with really clear theories about how we solve some of these puzzles. I have not seen sort of a clear understanding of why does the network effect sustain once you have a user population that doesn't see the same financial upside as the prior you know, user population. I don't see kind of really good theories as to why that's the case. And until that's resolved, either proving it out or at least kind of theorizing about it, then I think there's going to be, I would still see, you know, be pretty skeptical that that would work.
0: Yeah. I mean, it kind of seems like users, we talked about this a little bit, but users don't really care about some of these broader philosophical questions. Like I listened to a space that you did a few months ago or something with Balaji and like a lot of the ideas he's grappling with, eh, maybe they don't matter to the person who's just like trying to use a service and get some utility out of it. But that's very fundamental to a lot of the conversation right now. So I guess like, how do you foresee things going when investors are kind of pointing to some of these philosophical reasons for users to use some of these products when like that might not even matter to them?
2: Yeah, I I guess I would probably, maybe another area of my skepticism is that we might be overestimating the consumer demand for quote unquote ownership. And the reason why I can say that is because you get real trade-offs in products when you are deciding it's going to be a product where you can own the items versus sort of participate in a network but not really own much. Um, Mm -hmm. And the trade-offs are, are again, speed of innovation, the price of the service, the fact that Twitter only has to store your tweets in one database in their network as opposed to replicating that data a hundred times or a thousand times or whatever you might do the blockchain version on means that they can deliver a lower cost service to consumers. And the question will be, as you get sort of these maybe, you know, more expensive services that can't be subsidized through advertising, will consumers actually want to pay, you know, for that value proposition? And I think you have to really, really like the value of ownership, and kind of quote, unquote, (laughs) right to exit for you to make that trade. And I've not seen good theories as to how you're going to fund many of these types of products in a world where the infrastructure is more expensive and where you don't have the economies of scale that these centralized providers have to be able to subsidize through advertising, you're really going to need consumers to be paying for these products. And I think there's a lot of software on the internet that we've grown accustomed to just getting for free. You know, we could argue what's the role of you know targeted advertising and some of the challenges we have in society. I happen to be bullish on the power of advertising because it does make products cheaper and it does sort of facilitate businesses being able to go and find consumers. There are some that take the other side. That's totally great. I think the question is, what's the size of the market that's willing to take that trade off? And is the size of the market sort of big enough to warrant talking about a revolution in in how the internet works?
1: Right. And Aaron, we've talked a lot about consumer crypto use cases, and I know that's a big part of your thesis on Web3, but in reading about Box and learning more about Box, It seems like one of the major breakthroughs that you had there was sort of selling to enterprise customers versus the focus on individual consumers. And since we have talked a lot about crypto consumer right now, I'm curious what you think about maybe like enterprise use cases or even something like DAOs, where, you know, it's really changing how organizations work and behave. Are you maybe more optimistic there? uh <laughs> I, want,
2: I want yeah i want to be optimistic on everything believe me sure but sure fair really, enough,
0: most, yeah <laughs> why are you so pessimistic that's all i want to know most
2: of my time is, is spent thinking about the really positive parts of the future on the Dow thing it's like super exciting to watch as like a social experiment but i don't really know that it changed all that much like we know how to do communal groups the, the reason that, that most businesses don't move to that model is because it slows you down. The reason sure, yeah. why the iPhone doesn't let you vote on the features that are going to be in the next iPhone is because we all would, would not agree on what features we want in the next iPhone. <laughs> we rely on people in Cupertino to make decisions to build the iPhone. And then we get to decide if we want to buy it or not buy it. That's our only decision that we get to make in the iPhone. We don't get to vote on anything. And if we voted on something, it would dramatically slow down the system and you just wouldn't be able to innovate very quickly. And so the, the thing about the DAOs are, that are super interesting is, yes, for collective movements. I mean, that's super exciting. Like, you No know, arguing that. But to replace an organizational structure of a fast-moving you know startup or company, I just don't think it's going to work. So... Um, I don't think you would get the same innovation and, and sort of product rapid development in that kind of model and, and in a kind of scalable fashion across hundreds or thousands of these you know companies.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of my things on this and like, you know, I'm always curious about the VC side of this argument, but founders who are building products in the crypto space, maybe they have a token out there, maybe they have NFTs but they also have equity in their startup and they're selling equity to these VCs. And I'd imagine like in most cases, they're probably trying to think of how they can benefit their Z- VCs first and foremost. So I think that might be a little bit of a wrinkle in the kind of like democratizing of ownership in some capacity because it's kind of tiered ownership.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, th- that, that's totally true. But I think you, even if you removed all the VC incentives for a second, like you didn't even imagine them as a sort of a you know an actor in the ecosystem, I still think... If I started a DAO tomorrow and gave people lots of voting capacity of the DAO and it could affect product direction or, you know, the kind of people that, that are working in the project, you would just not be able to move as quickly as if I just had three people in a garage and we just built whatever application we wanted on whatever infrastructure we wanted to move as quickly as possible. So you're making a trade-off of that community governance and, and whatever that value proposition is. And again, my the way my brain works, it sort of says, OK, that might be a smaller set of use cases or value propositions than what we actually generally get from the broad economy.
1: So I'm curious about, you know, talking about a lot of this, I'm just thinking about Web3 is just a space where there's a lot of big egos and, you know, a lot of ambition, too. And some of that is good and some of that obviously is you might look at it differently. But I was reading one of your interviews where you talked about yourself as a founder in early days and talking about how you used to be pretty fiery and pretty stubborn. And do you think maybe part of the reason that Web3 personalities and and the ethos is the way it is, is just because it's such a young space? Or, or is there something more to it?
2: Um, I think that it's good for founders to be totally crazy and ambitious and want to go dominate the world. I think that's a good thing for, you know, you have to bust through a lot of incumbent complexity and, and friction. Like, you know, if Brian at Airbnb and that team didn't sort of say, you know, we're going to go and revolutionize hospitality, then we wouldn't have, you know, Airbnb at the current scale, right? So if you don't have founders that are insanely ambitious, like a wrecking ball through their industry, it just won't work, won't happen. So I, I think that the bravado is is all, it comes with the territory of entrepreneurship and, and, and startups. From my position, we have to make as a company bets on where we're going to put our resources and where we're going to put our time. So I have to try and kind of guess, do I think, you know, this market's going to play out in a particular direction or not? You know, when Google Glass comes out, you have to decide, are you going to put a team on building, you know, applications for Google Glass? And you have to make some assumptions about what you think the consumer demand is going to be for Google Glass. And then when the iPad comes out, you have to decide, you know, you have to put engineering resources on building an iPad app and you have to equally make decisions about well, how much demand you think there's going to be. And some brilliant innovations that are awesome from the standpoint of like, wow, that's, that's a magical, don't end up playing out as advertised because there's still enough friction in the way or there's not enough of a breakthrough of what that delivers for customers. And some amazing innovations do play out and they do change the whole world. And so, you know, this is another one of those funny things where people sort of show the Bill Gates clip of, of him explaining the internet. And, um, and it's sort of not going over. But, um, but, the, but the funny thing is, is like, yes, but there's also 100 other innovations that equally weren't, you know, there were skeptics around that don't work out. And so the, the key is, is to try and just figure out which category is any particular innovation in. And I'm, I'm certainly not writing off web three by any means. These are just puzzles that are sort of like, well, if we can't solve these, then I think there's going to be some big dilemmas and big challenges ahead. And I, I just haven't seen sort of evidence that we're going to be able to solve some of these big challenges.
0: I guess, you know, kind of wrapping things up, you're a successful guy in the Web2 world. And you spend a lot of time thinking about Web3 in some capacity, maybe just from a philosophical why it won't work standpoint. But do you think you'd ever make uh, angel investment in a Web3 startup? Like, how do you feel about that?
2: Um, you know, again, I, it, would have to, it would have to sort of comport with how I think consumers work and what things they actually want. I'm not anti-crypto. I'm not anti-blockchains. I do think that our industry and in tech has the ability to kind of create these bubbles that sort of end up seeming larger than maybe some of the real impact is going to be. And I think this type of bubble is unique in the sense that consumers and retail investors can participate way earlier in investing. And so that has a new set of risks as well. It has some exciting potential, but it also has some new risks, which is sort of why I think it's worth having these kinds of conversations amongst the bulls and maybe some more of the, uh, the skeptics. But you know, I'm always looking out at the space and I haven't made
0: any, you know, investments directly, but mostly just for personal reasons. Well be sure to tell old tech Ranch when you do. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, we're we're here. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Uh, it was fun getting to catch up. Yeah, thank you.
1: Thanks, Aaron. Take care. Thanks for listening. We'll be back every week with the top crypto news and interviews with experts in the space. You can catch us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite podcast platform, and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction, at techcrunch.com forward slash newsletters. Check out the links in our show notes for some of TechCrunch's crypto coverage this week. You can also follow us at Chain underscore Reaction on Twitter. This week's episodes of TechCrunch's equity podcast are also focused on crypto, so give those a listen if you want to learn more. We'll see you next week.
0: Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kolkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening.